1 Corinthians 10. So we're going to continue our study of the, the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. And, and this morning we're, we're finishing another segment of the letter. Remember, uh, uh, in chapters 8 through 10, uh, kind of broad, broad idea, Paul is writing to the Corinthians to address different issues that are going on in this church that he helped to plant. And in chapters 8 through 10, he's addressing this issue that was causing some problems among the, the Corinthians, and they had written to him about this, asking a question of basically whether or not a Christian could eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And that's not something that we typically deal with, but, but sort of a, a question of conscience. And Paul's goal in these three chapters has been on one level to, to answer that particular question for the Corinthians. But he's also using it as sort of a, a, a teachable moment to help the Corinthians think through how to make choices on matters that might be morally neutral or ambiguous or complex, these issues of what we would call Christian freedom or, or, or matters of conscience. So, in the passage this morning in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 through chapter 11, verse one, Paul's sort of winding up this argument and, and, uh, and is doing so with some summary, summary conclusions and applications for, for the Corinthians. So, it's, it's as if the, the Corinthians have, have asked Paul, um, okay, now Paul, you've said all of this in chapter 8, in chapter 9, beginning of chapter 10, you've gone back to the Old Testament, you've talked about Israel, you've said all of this, Paul, are we allowed to eat this meat sacrificed to idols or not? And Paul answers unequivocally, maybe. He doesn't give the Corinthians an ethical handbook on what to do in every situation. What he does do is give guidelines on how the Corinthians should make these kind of moral judgments about their actions as those who have been made alive in Christ. And so, like I said, we, we don't have the exact same questions as the Corinthians, uh, but, but Paul's point here is, is equally applicable to us. As we work through the passage, there's, there's a lot uh, that is going to be very specific to the Corinthians context. It can be easy to get lost because it's going to seem somewhat foreign to us. Uh, so, if you, if you start to feel like you're getting lost in the streets of Corinth, uh, I, want, I want you to keep in mind this main point. This is the, the big thing that Paul is getting at. And so, if you, if you start to feel lost, kind of reorient yourself with this. The main point that Paul's getting at is, is this. In the Christian life, Clear issues call for obedience, conscience issues call for wisdom, and all issues call for Christ-likeness. Clear issues call for obedience, conscience issues call for wisdom, and all issues call for Christ-likeness. So let's read the passage and pray, and we'll see what Paul has to say. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 14. Listen, because this is the Word of God. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is, it not, uh, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an, an idol is anything? 
No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience sake, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. Why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have written for our instruction. Lord, help us to understand it. Lord, help us to to see how it intersects with our lives here, how this, this word from Paul to Corinth in the first century matters for those of us here in Bucks County in the 21st century. For we have the same Lord that we desire to honor and glorify. We want to become more like Him. So, Lord, will You use Your Word to transform us that we might become more like Christ. Help us to be attentive to Your Word and to to take to heart that which is written in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So first, clear issues in the Christian life call for obedience. We see this in verses 14 to 22. So by clear issues, what I mean is something that's it's not a gray area. It's not something that's a, a question on which people of equal commitment to Christ, uh, equal uh, deference to the Word of God, can reason differently and disagree in good in good conscience. These are, these are not what Paul calls in Romans 14 disputable matters. These are issues on which there is indisputable clarity in Scripture. Right, so, you, could, you can draw a straight line from the teaching of Scripture to its application in the Christian life, and it's true for everyone across the board at all times, in all places, in all cultures. An easy example of this, and I hesitate to give too many examples because there's not enough nuance that I can give right now in this setting to to address all of it, but an easy example might be something like drunkenness. 
The Bible's clear on that. Drunkenness is a sin. Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's not a matter of personal judgment. Uh, it's, it's a clear directive of Scripture. So, how is a Christian to respond on an issue that's unequivocally morally clear? The answer that Paul gives is with faithful obedience to what Paul has commanded, or to what God has commanded, and what Paul commands. So first, the, the command that Paul gives in verse 14 is flee from idolatry. In this context, Paul's probably referring uh, back to this idea of Christians attending meals at, at idols' temples. We saw that back in chapter 8, these Christians who are going to idols' temples in Corinth and, and eating meals there, and it's sort of in some ways like a restaurant. This is they sacrifice the, the animal, and then they, they have these, these banquets in these halls attached to the, to the temples, but it's a part of this pagan worship ritual. In chapter 8, Paul argued that it would be wrong for Christians to do this, but in that case, he said it would be wrong because you might cause another Christian who had struggled with idolatry in the past to sin. Now, here he doesn't make the same argument. He actually makes a different argument on why Christians ought not do this. It makes it with greater force. He actually says this is, in fact, a clear issue. The required response from Corinthian Christians is, is equally clear. This is, this is idolatry. So flee from idolatry. Now, the Corinthians may well have responded as, as they did in, in chapter 8, but Paul, is it really idolatry? I mean, the Corinthians said in chapter 8, verse 4, we, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world. There's no God but one. If idols aren't real, then aren't these sacrificial feasts, they're really just social events. I mean, they might think that what they're doing is worshiping these gods, but we know that that's not true. So, what's the big deal? This is sort of the attitude that, that, that quite a bit of the world would have. It's like, well, did God really say this? Is it really that big of a deal? You guys are, are kind of being narrow. Like, shouldn't we just be able to do whatever we want? We're free in Christ. But for Paul, the answer is, yes, this is really idolatry. And to make his point, Paul em employs this comparison with another meal that the Corinthians were partaking of, the Lord's Supper. It says, both the Lord's Supper and these sacrificial feasts, these banquets that they're attending at idols' temples are fellowship meals. In the Lord's Supper, we enjoy fellowship with the God who is worshipped there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the meals in these idols' temples, you enjoy fellowship with the gods that are worshipped there, which are ultimately not gods, but demons. Look at verse 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? That word sharing in, in Greek is the word koinonia. You may have heard that word before. It's the word that can mean sharing, participation, community, or fellowship. It's the word that's used in Acts 2 where it talks about the early Christians being devoted to the fellowship. I think the idea here is, is that the Lord's Supper is a fellowship meal. It's both a sign and a means by which we truly experience fellowship with Jesus. Just like we, we have fellowship with Jesus when we 
read our Bibles, when we pray, when we worship. So the Lord's Supper is a means that God has given us to enjoy fellowship with Him. And Paul's point here is not to get into a, a, a thoroughgoing theology of the Lord's Supper. He's going to have more to say about that in chapter 11. But right now, he, he merely wants to point out that, that in the Lord's Supper, the Corinthians are truly experiencing fellowship with Christ. And just as the Lord's Supper is a fellowship meal, so too are these feasts in idols' temples. We learn in, in chapter 11, the Corinthians aren't actually taking the Lord's Supper all that seriously. There's lots of problems going on with that. But here we also see that they're, they're clearly not taking the implications of these sacrificial feasts seriously enough either. These are not just harmless social events. They're actually fellowship meals, and, and this fellowship and worship is of demons. And to explain this, Paul uses Israel as an example again, as he did earlier in chapter 10. Given the context, I think, he, again, he has in mind this idolatrous worship of, that Israel had in, in the wilderness that he referenced in chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. Look at verse 18. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers that word again, sharers, sharing, sharers in the altar. Remember, Israel had made a golden calf to worship at the foot of, of Mount Sinai. And we read this in Exodus 32, 5 and 6. Now, when Aaron saw this, the golden calf, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day, they rose early and offered burnt offerings. They offered sacrifices on the altar and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play, which is what Paul quoted in verse 7 of chapter 10. And so I think this is what Paul has in mind when he's talking about those who eat the sacrifices are sharers in the altar. That is, those who participate in this feast were by the very nature of the thing participating in the idolatrous worship that it entailed. They sacrificed animals on the altar to this idol and then took part in a feast that was by nature idolatrous. It was not possible for them to participate in this meal and be a neutral observer and say, well, they're all, they're all doing these sacrifices and worshiping this golden calf, but I'm just here for the steak. Those who share in the sacrificial feast share in the worship. Paul goes on, verse 19, what do I mean then? that a th uh, thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. Well, he's already dealt with that in chapter 8. There's no such thing as an, an idol. They're not real. No, but I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. That is, I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Behind these idols that the Corinthians are worshiping are not real gods like Apollo and Aphrodite as the Greeks imagined, but it doesn't mean that there's therefore no, no real spiritual presence, no real danger, because they're not sacrificing to gods, but Paul says they're in fact sacrificing to demons. Those are the real objects of worship behind these idols. 
This, again, was in fact what actually was happening with Israel in the wilderness. Listen to what Moses said about the people's idolatrous worship in Deuteronomy 32. He said, they made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods they whom they have not known, new gods who came lately whom your fathers did not dread, and you neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. So like Israel at Mount Sinai, these sacrifices that the, the Corinthians were, were making in these pagan feasts are in fact made to, to demons and so to participate in these feasts is not a morally neutral matter of conscience. It's to be in fellowship with the, the worship of demons, right? It's not, it's not like it's going to church and then going out to lunch. These are, are mutually exclusive acts of worship. Paul, Paul says in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, that may bring up all sorts of questions about well, what, do you, what do you mean that there's, they're, they're sacrificing to demons and, and, and how exactly does that, does that work? And, but Paul doesn't attempt to offer any kind of detailed theological explanation for it. He just says, this is just the way it is. He states this, this is the reality at hand, and then it leads to Paul's conclusion, right? You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. They're mutually exclusive. This is a clear matter, entirely incompatible with devotion to Christ. So, like in chapter 6, where we saw that being united to Christ and being united to a prostitute were mutually exclusive unions, so Paul commanded the Corinthians to flee immorality. Here, in a, in a parallel way, we see that communion with Christ and communion with demons is mutually exclusive, and so the path to obedience in this issue is to flee idolatry. And to demonstrate how serious that this is, Paul asks two more rhetorical questions in verse 22. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? So like Israel's idolatry provoked God's righteous jealousy for the allegiance of His people that He had redeemed from slavery for Himself. So, too, the Christian's practice of idolatry provokes the jealousy of the Lord Jesus who bought us with His precious blood that we might belong not to ourselves but to Him. We might well read this as Paul's version of, of the ultimatum that Elijah gave to the people of Israel on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 when he said to the people, "'How long will you hesitate between two opinions?' If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. You can either embrace idolatry and abandon Christ, or you can flee from idolatry and flee to Christ. But you can't have both. On this, there can be, 
No equivocation. This is not a matter of Christian freedom. This is a matter of Christian obedience. Now, the fact is that most of us are probably not considering whether or not we should go out to lunch after church and eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. If that's something you are struggling with right now, I would love to talk to you about it after church, but I have a feeling that's probably not what you're struggling with. That does not mean that we don't also struggle with temptations to idolatry and split loyalty between Christ and our idols. So, friends, here's the question. Are you living with a foot in two worlds? Are, are you like a spiritual double agent, putting on a show of worshiping Jesus on the Lord's Day, but living recklessly for your idols the rest of the week? Is, is there something that you are, are, are unwilling to give up for the sake of Christ? Now, let me be clear. What I'm not speaking of is someone here who desires to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, but still struggles and stumbles in sin. Friends, that's normal Christianity. Right? We're, we're not going to be perfect, which is why we are reliant wholly on the Lord's grace. But what I'm talking about is someone who is living a duplicitous life, someone who is flippantly disregarding the clear commands of Scripture and yet hypocritically calling themselves a Christian and so bringing dishonor on the name of Christ and condemnation upon themselves. We're talking about someone who is intentionally and blatantly making a practice of sin and refusing to repent. And I imagine that there are some here or some who are joining us online that fit this description. If that's you, listen to what I'm saying. Don't harden your heart. In God's providence, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper in a few weeks. If you claim to be a Christian, but you're secretly walking in darkness and, and, and embracing sin and idolatry, I need you again to hear the words of Paul. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons? Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? I don't say this to scare you. I say it to earnestly warn you. You cannot have both your idols and Christ. You cannot claim the saving confession that Jesus is Lord and yet live with total disregard for His Lordship. You can't receive life and salvation from Christ and at the same time reject His call to comprehensive allegiance. So how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If your idols can save you and satisfy you, follow them. But if only Christ can save you and satisfy you, then follow Him. Friends, if this is you, then the way of escape that God promised in verse 13 that God would not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will provide a way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. The way of escape is this, flee from idolatry and flee to Christ for refuge. In the Christian life, there are clear issues that call for obedience. But what about when an issue is not so clear? What about when it's an, an issue of conscience? Well, then the answer is not so simple, 
right? Despite what, what people who kind of have a more legalistic bent would say, and if you, if you have a more legalistic bent, you're someone who says, well, because there is something that is clear, I'm going to try to make everything clear for myself and for others. I'm going to try to make everything a black and white issue because this, this gift of God could be abused in certain situations, and I'm going to say it should never be used at all. But, but real life isn't like that. There, there are a lot of issues where you can't draw such a straight line from the express commands of Scripture to the proper Christian action, right? And I actually think you can see something of the, the difference in this in the way that Paul addresses these issues. In verses 14 to 22, there's one command, flee from idolatry. And then everything else in that paragraph is all built around supporting that and explaining that. This is why you have to do this. There doesn't need to be any further commands. That, that's it. There, there's no question about it. It's just flee. Flee from idolatry. The only response is obedience. But the rest of the passage, though closely related in its content, is much more complex. So now the issue in, in verses 23 and following, it's not about eating meat in these idols' temples at these, these pagan feasts. Now it's just about whether or not they can eat the meat anywhere in other circumstances. And there's not a clear-cut, unequivocal answer in this case. And you see that in verses 23 and following, there's not just one command where he says, don't eat the meat or eat the meat always. There's actually seven commands. It's more complicated. I think it's like Paul's telling us by the very grammar of the passage that this is not a cut and dry issue. It's more complex and nuanced, and so it takes more care to develop. So these are, these are conscience issues, matters that in and of themselves are morally neutral. It's not right or wrong, and on which every Christian has to make personal moral judgments. Again, another easy example for us would be regarding alcohol. As I said, drunkenness is a clear issue. Drunkenness is a sin. But consuming alcohol responsibly and in moderation, well, that is a more complex issue. And a conscience issue like this calls for the careful application of biblical wisdom. So again, Paul's addressing this issue that's that's really pressing in, in Corinth, and that can seem very foreign to us, but, but let's not focus so much on exactly what he's instructing them to do with eating this meat and, and miss how he's, how he's instructing them to evaluate the circumstances that they're in. That's, I, I want you to see here how Paul is applying this careful wisdom to his conclusions about how the Corinthians are to treat these sort of morally complex issues. So, what we see here is Paul calling the Corinthians to consider three overarching questions when they're evaluating how to act in matters of conscience. Oftentimes, when we are faced with something like this, the first question we ask is, am I allowed to do it? But instead of that, Paul says we should ask, does it build others up, does it commend the gospel, and does it glorify God? So let's look at those. First, does it build others up? You see, this, this is what he spends most of the time on, verses 23 to 30. 
If I'm confronted with a choice about something that's not clearly defined in Scripture, I should ask, will my choice build others up because their edification is more important than my freedom? He expresses this basic principle in verses 23 and 24. All things are lawful. This is him quoting the Corinthians slogan back, right? The Corinthians were saying, well, I'm free in Christ. All things are lawful for me. I can do it. And Paul says, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify or build up. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. This is very similar to what Paul says elsewhere about matters of Christian freedom, like in 1 Corinthians 8, which we looked at a few weeks ago, or Romans 14, or Galatians 5. One of the, the primary considerations that we should have is how our actions will affect others. Will it build them up or will it tear them down? And that's really just an application of the great commandment, which Jesus spoke, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in this particular circumstance, Paul goes on to give sort of three case studies, these scenarios that the Corinthians were facing and how this would apply in those circumstances, right? So example number one, verse 25 and 26, he says, don't seek your own good, seek that of your neighbor. He says, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Now, so some of the meat that would have been sacrificed to these idols uh, wouldn't just be eaten at these feasts. It would then be sold to the meat markets where people could go and buy it. It was just like the grocery store. I'm saying, if you're going to go out to the market and buy meat, buy it and eat it. Don't worry about where it came from. You don't need to ask about it. He says, well, well why? Well, there's, there's nothing wrong with the meat itself. And he explains it in verse 26. He quotes Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The meat belongs to God. The, the fact that pagans sacrificed it to idols doesn't mean that the idol suddenly owned the meat and took it away from God. The Lord owns it. It's His. The fact that somebody else abuses it doesn't negate that it still belongs to Him. So the meat is not carrying with it some kind of spiritual food poisoning because of its history. The issue was the context in which it was being served, which is being eaten. The issue is not the meat itself. So feel free to eat it without feeling like you need to find out where it came from. It all belongs to the Lord. Okay, what about another situation? Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. So if uh, an unbeliever invites you over for, for dinner and serves you meat, if you want to eat it, go ahead. There's nothing wrong with it. You're not sinning because the issue, again, isn't the meat. In this context, it's not being used as a part of idolatrous worship. There's nothing wrong with it. What about another scenario? What about if you're eating meat at an unbeliever's house and, verse 28, anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols? Well, then he says, don't eat it. But he doesn't say don't eat it because now suddenly there's something wrong with the meat, right? He says, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. 
I mean, not your own conscience, because you know there's nothing wrong with it, but the other man's. And this gets to Paul's point here, right? It's, it's not that there's something wrong with the meat. It's not that this action has suddenly become sinful, but, but don't do it because in so doing, you may have a detrimental effect on somebody else. And Paul is saying, your action and the way that it affects another person, the way it builds up somebody else is way more important than whether or not you get to enjoy your steak dinner. You're doing it not for your own conscience, but for the others. You're doing it out of concern, not for your own rights, but the other person's wealth, welfare, and you're, and you're willingly surrendering your rights for their sake. As Paul would say, in, in situations where an action is morally neutral and it wouldn't be tearing others down, then you have the freedom in Christ to do as you wish. But in situations where you would not be building others up, but rather would be serving yourself and it would be having a detrimental effect on others, then you have the freedom not to exercise your right out of love for the other person. That's the way of Christ. So, in a, in a conscience issue, you should ask, does this action or choice build others up? Because ultimately, others' edification is more important than my freedom. Next, if I'm confronted with a choice about something that's not clearly defined in Scripture, I should ask, will my choice commend the gospel to others because their salvation is more important than my freedom? All right? Look at verses 32 and 33. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Paul's made this argument more extensively in in chapter 9. He's willing to to give up his freedoms for the sake of the gospel, right? In chapter 9, he says, I have a right for you to pay me for preaching the gospel to you, but I don't make use of that right because I want to do everything I can to have the only thing standing between you and salvation to be the cross, not some other stumbling block that I put in my way. Incidentally, I, uh, I have no problem having you pay me for preaching the gospel. That was Paul. <laughs> Paul's willing to, to give up his freedoms for the sake of the gospel so that others may be saved. If people reject him, he wants it to be because of the message of the cross and not something else that unnecessarily hinders them. So he tells us, give no offense in what you do. Now, the point that he's making is not be a people pleaser, right? If if we're obedient to God, then we will be offensive in some cases because what we value and how we act is contrary to what the world values and how the world acts. The point that he's making is don't be unnecessarily offensive because the gospel in and of itself is offensive enough. The gospel states that we're sinners by nature and choice, that we are under God's condemnation, that there's nothing that we can do, that Christ died in our place for our sins, that He rose from the dead, that He commands all people everywhere to give up their sinful rebellion against God, to repent, to trust Him alone for salvation. And that this salvation is found in no one else but only in Christ. 
Jesus does not need any help from us in making the gospel more offensive to the world. And yet we seem to be very good at making it more offensive. If people reject the gospel, let it be because they are offended by Christ and the demands that He places on them in His Word and not by our selfishness and pride. We learned that in chapter 1 that the message of the cross is a stumbling block and foolishness to the world, and we don't need to put any other stumbling blocks in the way. So, we should ask as we are thinking about uh, whether or not we should make a choice or, 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 or do something, we should ask, does this action or choice, does it commend the gospel to others? Because others' salvation is more important than your freedom. And then finally, verse 31, if I'm confronted with a choice about something that's not clearly defined in, in Scripture, I should ask, does my choice glorify God because His reputation is more important than my freedom? Verse 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Ultimately, this is the most important question. Uh, all the other questions are really kind of included in this one. If we seek to build others up by our actions, if we seek to commend the gospel by our actions, then it's to the glory of God. And so we need to consider regarding the decisions that we make about matters of conscience that are, are, are we doing it because ultimately it would bring God glory? Does it magnify His greatness and His grace? Does it build others up? Does it commend the gospel and so glorify God? Or are we making decisions because, well, that's my right. That's what I want to do. I think of it this way. Does your action or choice properly reflect the selfless giving of God's character? Does it actually portray what God is like? Before you skip over that and say, well, of course what I'm doing is, is for God's glory. I'm a Christian. Everything I do is for God's glory. I want you to, to consider that our, our inner lawyer has a way of convincing our conscience that God's will and my will are often very much aligned. It's startling how often my mind, uh, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm thinking about an action, will say, well, what will glorify God? And it's so remarkable that, that it often is, is very similar to what I want. With apologies to John Piper, the default setting of my heart is to think that God is most glorified in me when I most satisfy my own desires. Or God is most glorified in me when I shove my freedom in Christ down somebody else's throat. My friends, I don't think I have to say much to convince you that that's not the way of Christ. That's just self-centered pride, and it does not accurately portray the character of God. So instead, you should ask, does this action or choice glorify God because His reputation is more important than my freedom? And altogether, Paul's point is that these conscience issues call for the careful application of biblical wisdom to these circumstances. We ask these questions because there's not a straight line that we can draw from Scripture to our actions, and so we have to think carefully 
about what we do and ultimately think carefully about what we do for the glory of God and the good of others and not the satisfaction of ourselves. And as a summary of what he's taught in these three chapters, Paul ends with simply this in chapter 11, verse 1, which really should be part of the end of chapter 10, and the monk who decided this is where chapter 11 started was wrong. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Everything he's been saying really just boils down to this. What would Jesus do? And in reality, we, we, we don't have to guess. The whole trajectory of Jesus' life is one of humility and willingly surrendering his own freedoms, his own rights for the sake of others. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to God, willingly gave up his freedom for the glory of God and for the good of others, for our good. So as those who have been bought by and belong to Christ, we're to follow his example. Now, there are two things I would say on this point by way of closing. If you're not a Christian, it's wonderful if if Jesus is your example. Following Jesus as your example is, is, is a commendable practice, but it will not save you. Jesus needs to be your substitute before he can be your example. I want to be clear on this because I don't want you to hear me saying all of this and, and thinking that, well, being a Christian only comes down to being obedient and trying harder to become more like Jesus. Coming into a right relationship with God, receiving forgiveness and eternal life is not a matter of how closely you follow Jesus' example. Being a Christian is not first and foremost a matter of following Christ as your example, but trusting Christ as your substitute. When Jesus died on the cross, He was not merely giving you an example to follow. He died a death that we deserved. He paid the the penalty that was due to us. He bore the wrath of God against sin as our substitute. That is, in our place, in your place. And, And our sin can be forgiven when we stop resting our hope for forgiveness in how complete our obedience is and start resting it in how complete Christ's obedience on our behalf is, on how complete His death as our substitute is. And because it's entirely a matter of the completeness of what Christ has done for us, not what we do for Him, then this salvation is entirely a result of God's grace not our effort. It's freely offered to us to be received simply by trusting Jesus and entrusting ourselves to Him. The gospel is not be more like Jesus. The gospel is Christ died for our sins and rose again. And so before you can follow Jesus as your example, You have to trust Him and Him alone to save you through His death as your substitute. And then you follow Him as your example, but not so that you can be forgiven, but because you have been forgiven. Now, if you are a Christian, then you need to remember that Jesus is both your substitute and your example. 
I, I want to specify this because I think sometimes we can be very good sort of in our circles of talking about Jesus as our substitute. And rightly so. It's the glorious heart of the gospel. But we can very easily forget or ignore that Christ is, in fact, also to be our example, our pattern of a godly life. Remember, God told us that those who are saved are being conformed to the image of His Son. Sometimes I worry that we think we can take Jesus as our substitute and not also as our example. We want Him to save us, but we really have no interest in becoming more like Him. Or we like to focus on following Jesus' example in some ways, but not in others. For instance, I think there are many Christians who love to think that they are following Jesus' example in how they interact with others, but it seems like the only story they have ever read in the Gospels is Jesus cleansing the temples with a whip and flipping over tables. A lot of times I hear people say, if Jesus were here, He'd be flipping over tables. I don't think He'd be flipping over tables quite as much as we think. Yes, part of following Jesus means following His righteous anger and indignation against evil, absolutely. But if all you seem to ever do in your imitation of, of Christ is get righteously angry, I suggest that your anger might not be all that righteous. We must look to Christ in the fullness of His character to be our example, not just the parts we like or that happen to fit with our own actions or our own desires. We have to follow Him in our, in our willingness to obey the clear teaching of the Word of God and apply wisdom in matters of conscience with a settled willingness to seek the good of others and the glory of God over pleasing ourselves. To be free in Christ, in part, means to no longer be enslaved to our selfish desires and so be free to give up our rights for the sake of others. That's what it means to imitate Christ. And if you're a Christian, your goal should not only be to imitate Christ, but to do so in such a way that, like Paul, you might say to others, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that our salvation is not dependent on how much like Jesus we are but on how fully sufficient and complete His work on our behalf is. If it was up to us, Lord, if you kept a record of sin, oh Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Father, we thank you too that you have not left us simply to to wade through this life of, of sin and corruption on our own, but that you have given us your spirit. You are making us new. You are transforming us, renewing us into the image of your beloved son. So Lord, help us. Help us take to heart these things that Paul has written. Help us to put into practice. Help us to to be obedient to that which we know to be true, that which you have clearly revealed in your word. And Lord, help us. Help us to be wise in the way that we reason from the scriptures, seeking your glory and others' good over our own. And Lord, we would ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you this week. You're dismissed.